Welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I'm so excited to have this guest on. Dr. Rachel Goldman is just a powerhouse when it comes to holistic approach on you and mental health. So Dr. Rachel Goldman is a clinical psychologist and speaker who takes a holistic approach to health. She specializes in the mind-body connection, including stress reduction, the treatment of obesity, weight management, and health behavior change. She's also a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and has a private practice in New York City where she utilizes cognitive behavioral therapy to assist in behavioral changes, both with individual clients and corporate wellness. She is a sought-after expert who has been featured in many media outlets, including the New York Times, Time Magazine, CNN, USA Today, Shape, and Women's Health. She's on the wellness board of VeryWell.com. She continues to live an active lifestyle and is passionate about helping others live healthier and happier lives by promoting positive behavioral changes. She believes everyone can live happy and healthy lives. This is such an honor. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this week's Dude Therapist episode. I'm so excited to have this amazing therapist. Uh, Dr. Rachel is, you got to check out her Instagram account. I promise all the things will be in the show notes. Um, so much content, so much amazing content and tips and tools uh, for everyone and anyone. But uh, let's turn it around and put, Dr. Rachel, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm um, Dr. Rachel Goldman, a clinical psychologist in New York City, specializing in health behavior change. So I utilize something called cognitive behavioral therapy to help my clients work through whatever they're going through. Um, Typically, that includes stress management, anxiety, or um, disordered eating, or body image and weight concerns. You know, I'm a therapist myself, and I love, I'm a huge fan of CBT. And can you kind of give us a little insight into what CBT is and maybe explain how it can help people in a very, I know it's more complex than what you're probably going to explain, but in like a simple terms for the listeners out there who might not know what CBT is. Sure. So um, kind of behavioral therapy or referred to as CBT, as you said, um, is a type of therapy. So I think a lot of people don't know that there's different types of therapy out there. Um, but it's a very specific type of therapy that is, um, you know, it's looking at the relationship between our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, and it assumes that they are all related. So we can challenge our thoughts, which will then in turn change our emotions and our behaviors, or we can change our behaviors and that will also then change our thoughts and our emotions as well. Um, so there's a lot of different CBT skills or tools that can be utilized And I think the skills and tools actually can be used for many different things. You know, like if we think about CBT, it was initially developed um, for the treatment of depression. Mm -hmm. And since then, it's now been a evidence-based treatment for several mental health um, disorders, diagnoses, as well as other symptoms. So really anybody struggling with anything, I think can benefit from some of the CBT skills like goal setting um, or self-monitoring or, you know, restructuring and challenging those unhelpful thoughts as well. Yeah. A lot of the things I do in the beginning of the practice when I work with someone is really like the idea of labels, right? The labels that we put on emotions or the labels we Mm -hmm. put on ourselves. And I always put it like the concept of when you go shopping, you see a product 
and you read the product based on the label, or you might buy something because the label might look a certain way, like a book or, or Heinz ketchup or anything, Mm -hmm. because you know, the label, it kind of sticks out. You go, ah, I understand that because of the label. And I kind of work through with my clients in the beginning, usually in the first, like two to three sessions, it's really about, well, how have you labeled yourself or how have the world or society have labeled you? Because then we can kind of interact with the world based on that, whether it's our race, our religion, um, how we're looked at, whether we're considered happy, angry, all those things that we kind of Mm -hmm. put on ourselves. What are some common things that you've noticed labels or things that people kind of put on themselves that define them? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I I think a lot of um, the clients that I work with, you know, if we, if we just kind of look at look at those individuals, you know, a lot of my clients struggle with body image and weight concerns. Um, So even today, I had a client that was afraid of, you know, like her family judging her because Mm -hmm. of her weight gain during this time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we very easily or very quickly realized that it's really her judging herself, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that's something to keep in mind that everybody can relate to, you know, that we are not defined by our weight. We are not defined by what we eat. We are not defined by, you know, any of those things. And we're so much more than that. Um, So I think, you know, that's definitely a helpful tool, you know, to remind people that, you know, food is food. It's what we eat, but it's not who we are. Um, and same thing with our weight or the scale or, or our pant size, you know, it's, it's just a number that that's really all it is. And we can kind of accept that and move on from it much easier said than done, but, but, but it's possible. I love that you brought that up. You know, I, I know I, as a met, as a guy, I struggle with that body image or the numbers, um, sometimes more than my wife, depending on the day, uh, because I always was, I was extremely thin growing up as a kid. Uh, ADHD, ADHD medication, you know, I had to drink um, those boost shakes just to keep yeah. in the average quote unquote BMI or the or whatever the thing right. is. So like keep the weight on. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden I hit a certain age and now I'm on certain medications because of my chronic illness and I've gained so much weight that it kind of messes with your head of what mm-hmm. makes you feel good or how you do it. And I love that you said that idea that food's food. My wife is a dietitian. And we talk about intuitive eating all the time. And this is why I really got attracted to your your content is because you're involved in the eating disorders and bariatric surgery and pre and post surgery. How did you get into that? And what kind of maybe pushed you in that direction that you're so passionate about it and seemingly do an amazing job in it as well? Well, thank you. Um, and, and I love hearing more about you and that your wife is a dietitian because already in my head, I'm like, oh my God, we have to talk more. Um, because I, I approachable. Actually, yes. Well, I actually joke that I think I have just as many dietitian friends as psychologist friends um, because of the specific field that mm-hmm. I'm in. And I have to work very closely with dietitians, but also I think it's important for, you know, the the type of work that I do, that I have a basic understanding of nutrition um, because I am dealing with individuals or working with individuals that are struggling with food um, concerns. And obviously we're going to, you know, food falls into that dietetic field. Um, So yeah, so great question. Um, Many people do ask and kind of wonder how I get into this field or how I got into this field. And it started, it starts actually um, a long time ago. So I actually never wanted to go into psychology. I was 
It was the one thing that I knew I didn't want to do, if, mm. if that makes sense. Um, and the reason was because my mom majored in psychology mm. and I'm, I'm very much like my mom. And I didn't want to do that because that's what she did. Um, she's not a psychologist, though. She just majored in it. Um, so I felt very strongly that I'm not going to major in it. And I always danced my whole life. Um, so as a hobby, I danced and I knew I wanted to do something with dance, but I didn't want to be a dancer. So I went to college my freshman year for something called dance science, Mm. which is like a physical therapist in essence Mm. for, for dancers. Um, and I was exposed to the eating disorder world as a dancer majoring in dance science on a level that I never was. Um, so I grew up in a very small town where, um, like I danced for fun. Yes, it was competitive. I did competitive dancing as well. But the pressure wasn't there mm-hmm. for weight, body image, like it was maybe in big cities. Yeah. Um, so here I am surrounded by real dancers, which which I was too, but different. Um, and the first day in my um, kind of dance intensive, I was literally exposed to the eating disorder world um, and seeing it, you know, on a day-to-day basis, like disordered eating, disordered thoughts, even the way that the teachers kind of spoke to us. And it really opened my eyes to the world of psychology. Um, I became very curious about, you know, human behavior and thoughts surrounding this. And very quickly, I decided to transfer to a school that had a um, psychology department or a larger psychology department and decided to major in psychology to study um, disordered eating behaviors. And then at the same time, as I'm learning about eating disorders and disordered eating, I thought it would be very useful to take nutrition and health education courses. So I took enough courses to, as if I was minoring in nutrition or health education. Mm. And at the time, I actually thought I was creating a new field of study called health psychology, which already existed, but I didn't know at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is kind of how I got into the disordered eating psychology world. Mm. Um, But then as I learned more and did more research, I I realized that, you know, um, treating eating disorders in the anorexia bulimia side of the eating disorder spectrum, as I like to look at it, um, is very, very difficult. And and we know that it's, you know, has one of the highest mortality rates um, and is, is, you know, a burnout for, for therapists in general and and healthcare professionals in that field. And I also realized that it's a small percentage of people that actually get diagnosed with those disorders that I really wanted to expand and help the average person with what I was gaining knowledge about like nutrition and health education and human behavior and thoughts and all of these things. So then I kind of decided more to work with the average person, which these days, um, you know, is overweight the average person struggling with their weight. And then um, on my clinical psychology internship, I was first exposed to the bariatric surgery world where I um, did a, I I was doing behavioral medicine was my internship track. And I had a rotation doing bariatric surgery evaluations. And I quickly understood things that I never understood. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I danced growing up then I started running. I was always very active. I was always very health conscious So of course, my initial thoughts, when somebody wants to get bariatric surgery, my initial thought, the first day I was doing this evaluation was kind of like, well, just walk to the mailbox. And my 500 pound patient in the room says to me, I can't do that. Like I can't even lift my leg. And I quickly realized that people really have difficulties, um, that it's a real struggle. And it completely changed 
my world in terms of, you know, helping people from a different outlook. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I actually specialized in bariatric surgery, weight management and obese and the treatment of obesity for the rest of my internship. I got a postdoctoral fellowship um, specifically in that field and then worked at a hospital, um, a major hospital here in New York city for five years where I created their behavioral psychology part to their bariatric surgery, obesity department. Um, and like I said, completely shifted gears. Um, but all of that work that you do, it, you know, and I'm sure you can really, when you do CBT, it's generalizable to, to other areas. Yeah. So if I'm helping somebody treat obesity or helping them accomplish their health goals, it's really going back to the basics. Mm-hmm. It's going back to looking at these health behaviors. It's going back to looking at these unhelpful thoughts, yeah. these, you know, cognitive distortions and, and it's, and it's the same, but different. Yeah. So, you know, and that's where I think I've expanded my work since going into my private practice, you know, to be more um, general in that sense. Although I'm still dealing with utilizing CBT to help people with stress management and body image and all of these things. Yeah, and I love that you're, you, you know, I, when I was in grad school, I had two colleagues of mine one who had an eating disorder. And that was the reason why she went into being a therapist and another colleague of mine who was a model and saw such eating disordered eating and anorexia and bulimia that was rampant in the model world. And she said she was sitting there watching it and thought, these are the ideals of body of the world promoted in marketing and, and every, and every underwear gene, every, magazine and every single company in the world, but they're so unhappy with their bodies. But we, as like the general public, look at them as this is the ideal human being. And she said, I need to do something about this. And I was so inspired by their story, but at the same time, I've worked with clients who have eating disorders or disordered eating, and it is really hard work. Like Mm -hmm. you said, it is very, very difficult. And there's so much I have found trauma and pain in the person's history and past. Can you maybe touch on, this might be a hard question to answer, but some things that might lead someone down that path or kind of uh, push into the direction of maybe disordered eating? Yeah. So um, it it is a hard question to answer. It's very, each person's different. Yes. I was just going to say, everybody is a unique individual and has their own um, stories and, you know, different triggers, of course. But I think something that I've been talking about a lot lately with clients, and I think especially given this time of year where people are, um, you know, visiting family Mm -hmm. more, even though it is a pandemic, um, and being around, you know, people that they don't typically live with, um, is kind of these comments that we get from people and, and once again, this isn't what causes an eating disorder, yeah. but it definitely doesn't help the situation. So, you know, an eating disorder or disordered eating, like many other issues, is caused by a multitude of things. Um, you know, an eating disorders, part of it is genetics, of course, as well, yeah. kind of this predisposition. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it's like a famous quote that I, you know, I actually, I think it was the first line of my dissertation, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it was... Um, genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. Yes. I've heard yes. that recently yes. on a lot of podcasts. It was, the, it was the first line of my dissertation. Um, and, and, and it's true. We can think of that specifically with eating disorders. We can think about that with obesity. We can think about it with so many things that somebody can be predisposed to mm-hmm. it, but then their environment kind of like pushes it over, you know, yeah. or pushes that gun. Um, 
So, so for instance, we were just talking about that communication and the messages that we hear. Well, we hear these messages from society. We hear these messages, say, in marketing. We hear these messages on TV, social media, of course, now with Instagram all over the place. Um, but we hear these messages from people around us and that we look up to also. So I think, for instance, for anybody listening to this, if you have kids or if you are a role model to children, you know, be mindful of the words that we speak around them, even about ourselves, maybe without, you know, it doesn't even need to be a comment to them, but, you know, like if, if we're a a parent and we say, oh, I feel fat today Mm -hmm. or, oh, this or that, or I, you know, I feel ugly, whatever it is, um, you know, those children look up to us as role models and they're, they think we're superwoman and Superman. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're putting ourselves down. They're then going to internalize that and be like, wow, mommy or daddy, you know, are amazing. Yet they think this, I must think that like, I must be that way too. So, I mean, that's just an example, of course, Yeah. but, but that's how these thoughts, you know, that we have these cognitive distortions that we're talking about, these unhelpful thoughts, they're created by sometimes messages that we hear from other places or other people. And it may not even be a direct message. It's a way we interpret that message. Right. So it's actually funny because my post this morning was even about this, that, you know, any situation is neutral until we interpret the situation and we put our thought into play. Mm -hmm. So maybe that comment or a comment or something that somebody sees or hears is neutral, but then when we interpret it, we perceive it a certain way, then we, we internalize it and then it becomes more than that. So I think just, you know, remembering that any message that we get from different people Um, we can internalize it. And I think especially when we're in vulnerable or sensitive situations, it happens more so, right? Like if we feel really good about ourselves and we're confident, you know, when we hear something like that, we might, it might be easier to brush aside or Mm -hmm. brush off and ignore it. But like kids, for instance, that are very impressionable um, when they hear something like that, or when somebody's going through a really big stressor or maybe trauma, right? Um, You know, they're going to hear that and really internalize it and then start believing it also. The parent thing, I really lo- I love everything you say because you're just so good at what you do and you're so articulate in your amazing ideas. But the thing with the parents is so important. I am very, very careful. Like I know I am self-conscious about my weight and it's something that I struggle with. But if I ever talk to my daughter, I never use that language around her to say, I am I, I feel fat or I don't feel so good about myself. You know, and even referring to myself, I might say, daddy's very comfy. Like, I'm a come give daddy a hug. He's so comfy, you know, mm-hmm. and that might not be the best thing to say, but I never say, oh, come give me because I have more fat to love because right. that then makes the focus on the fat and the body. And even with my daughter, she's a year and a half old and she understands and really is starting to truly pick up things. I don't just focus on her beauty and her looks. I also focus on her actions and behaviors. Um, you know, in a positive way. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, you figured that out so well. It's not just, oh, you're so beautiful and you're so cute and you're so yummy, which I believe a thousand Mm -hmm. percent over that she is my yummy little girl. But at the same time, it's not just about the looks. And I want to, you know, as you're talking, I wrote down a note in my phone because I didn't want to forget this. Can you maybe talk about this? Because some people might be struggling with this idea of what is considered disordered eating and what is considered being fit or a healthy lifestyle. Where's that line that you cross in the sand that's unhealthy or disordered eating or just having a healthy lifestyle? 
Yeah. So such an important question. Um, and I think it's um, important to distinguish that and to differentiate it. So I think if we just kind of start with the basics and think about, you know, um, any, and you know this being a, a therapist yourself, but in our world, right, we use something called the DSM. Mm-hmm. So the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, we're on the fifth edition. Um, and I like to, whenever people ask me questions like that, I like to talk about it in this way because I think it's important. Even right now, like people are struggling with, say, anxiety symptoms or depressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. You know, like we all are. It's it's common right now. But like, yeah. when does it become a problem, right? Or when does it become an issue that we should really seek help for? So, you know, I think the first thing that I like to remind people or rather to ask people is, is it causing distress? Is it bother you that you are like thinking about food all the time, for instance? Um, Is it getting in the way of you fulfilling your everyday activities or your responsibilities? And actually in order to be diagnosed as you know, um, with the DSM, you have to meet that criteria for it to be a diagnosable clinical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So that's the first question. Like, is it causing you distress? And is it getting in the way of you fulfilling your responsibilities or getting in the way of you functioning on a daily basis? So for instance, we'll we'll use an example with disordered eating. If you are, um, you know, saying no to every social event because you are afraid of eating in front of people, like that probably is disordered, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're, you're not able to do things that you typically would do on a regular basis out of fear of maybe thoughts or judgments or, you know, not wanting to eat in front of people, whatever it is. Um, Now, if you look in advance at the menu before you go out to eat to see what they have, so you're prepared and you want to get excited about what you're going to eat, or maybe you want to make a healthy choice, not disordered. Mm -hmm. That is actually a a healthy lifestyle, Mm -hmm. right? Like we actually encourage people sometimes to do that because if we are prepared and planned going into a situation, it's less anxiety provoking in the moment. So I would say first, think about that. Like, is it causing you distress? Is it impacting your daily functioning or getting in the way of you doing things that you want to do? And then I also add, like, if you're questioning if this is disordered or not, it can't hurt to seek professional help, like just to ask, to find out, right? Like, all it could be is a phone call and be like, you know, a consult, like, look, this is what I'm going through. Like, do you think this is, you know, because often if we think it is, that means it doesn't sit right with us and yeah. something doesn't feel right. And it, there's no harm in finding out and talking about it. Like, where's this coming from? Can I change it type of thing? I, I love that you brought it into asking the question and getting help. I know people always ask me all the time, like, oh, can we talk for a little bit, you know, consultations, this, that, and the other thing. I'm not sure. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And and that's the start of an amazing conversation because I always, not always, I work a lot with clients about the idea that, like you said, it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to have, because we all do. We all have some anxieties here and there. It's when it borders and goes into a certain scenario where it kind of stops you from being yourself or functioning in your daily life. That's the concern. And it's not the end of the world, but it means you might need some extra help. And that is where the real true help happens is when you actually go and ask and discover and wonder instead of not even knowing, because, you know, it's not a problem to have anxiety. It's part of life. And, you know, this is a great segue into, you know, I know one of your things is, is, is very, you're very 
big on social media about stress management and dealing with stress and the past couple of months. And I can't even count anymore about Corona and COVID and holiday season and everything just crammed into a year of just uncertainty. Can you kind of touch on maybe two or three kind of basic stress management tips that the listeners can kind of utilize in their daily life that could be really beneficial for them? Sure. Um, so, so the first thing I typically remind people to focus on when their worlds get disrupted or stress happens, or I like to say life happens, um, when, when that happens, you know, to try to focus on what's in our control. So I think that's the biggest thing, you know, if we really think about it, anxiety or stress comes from a place of thinking too far into the future, which hasn't happened yet. We can't control it. Or rehashing the past, which is over and done with, we also can't control it. So if we can come back to the present and be like, what is in my control right now, that's going to help decrease stress in the moment. And when we talk about what's in our control right now, it typically includes our behaviors and, of course, the way that we respond or react um, to different things. So we can't control other people. We can't control how other people behave or act. And we can't control like those daily stressors, like the weather, the commute, coronavirus, things like that. Um, So if we first focus on that, and that actually then brings me up to my second tip, which is to have a routine. So like, once again, what's in our control is our behaviors. Our behaviors is part of our routine. So what do we do on a daily basis for us to help us de-stress, participate in self-care, stay healthy, whatever. Um, So our routine may look very different on different days. But the basic kind of skeleton of that routine, the basic routine is still there. We have ideally bedtime, we have a wake up time, we have our meal time. And then I like to, you know, like ideally we have movement or activity and we have some stress management or me time, some self-care. So that may look very different, different days. But if we go back to that basic idea of like, okay, I need to focus on my sleep. I need to get my fuel, my food, my energy. I need to move, ideally get some fresh air, and I need to work on me. If that's even just a few deep breaths, if that's, you know, whatever it is. Um, So those are kind of two of my go-tos. And then I'll add a third one, which also goes along with both of those. If we think about what's in our control, our behaviors, we can think about our stress management. So we talk about um, tools, right? We want to have tools in our toolbox. They're coping mechanisms is Mm -hmm. really what they are. Um, and I always recommend that we have at least three go-to tools. So, you know, like say, and and the reason I say three is because if I say, you know, my go-to when I'm stressed is to go outside and the weather's horrible, Mm -hmm. then what am I going to do? I'm going to sit with that stress and it's not going to go away. If my go-to is I'm going to call you and you're not available when I really need it, then what am I going to do? So one of the three, I always say should be something internal that we don't need anybody else for or anything else for. We just need us. So that could be something like a breathing exercise. That could be um, like meditation, mindfulness, imagery, you know, some kind of relaxation technique that I can do right now. Nobody really needs to know I'm doing it and I don't need anybody else for it. And we can actually find little pockets of time throughout the day to utilize that relaxation technique to help bring our stress level down. Even if we don't feel like we're stressed, why not lower it a little bit? Like bring that baseline down. So then when life happens, it's just like a bump in the road. We can mm-hmm. control and it comes right back down mm-hmm. as opposed to building up, building up, building up. And then the smallest thing, we've all done this, the smallest thing somebody says, we blow. 
it's not because of what they said. It's because of all the added stress that's been building up that we haven't been able to manage well. Yeah. And I, I like to use like the imagery. I'm a big, like a uh, imagery kind of person. And I always think of a boiler and mm-hmm. the, the steam yeah. is just building up or like shaking a Coke can or a mm-hmm. bottle. And that one little extra shake kind of pops the top off right. when, if we just would have been able to just de-stress and lower the steam or lower the bubbles or pressure in the Coke can or the boiler, um, that one little bump would not have put us over the top. And I want to just backtrack a little bit because um, I follow a lot of dietitians. My wife is a dietitian. I love your work in that area. And I really want to get more into that stuff in the last, uh, you know, little bit that we have diet culture, you know, this concept of canceling diet culture, anti-diet, all those kind of books and theories as a therapist in this world, what is your view on diet culture and maybe how reliant people are on diets and those fads that they kind of, it could be maybe destructive. What are your thoughts in the diet culture movement? Yeah. So tough question, loaded question. Um, but I will start by saying, I don't believe in diets. Um, but also I define a diet as anything that is not sustainable. Mm. So that could be simply cutting out carbs. To me, that's a diet. Mm. It's not sustainable. Um, now when I say that, you know, maybe if somebody has a a medical illness and they have to cut out something that that's different, right? That's, that's like a diet that they maybe have to be on to survive, to not have physical symptoms, et cetera. But in general, um, I do not believe that we should cut anything out of our diet. Um, meaning the food we put in our mouth, not diet in terms of a diet. Um, and if it is not sustainable, it is a diet. And if it's not sustainable, it probably means it's being restrictive. And when we restrict, we actually tend to then overeat. So it kind of backfires. Well, it not kind of, it does. It does backfire. Um, So, and I'm sure anybody listening can relate to this if they've ever been on any kind of diet, once again, defined as being something not sustainable, that whenever we try to cut something out or we try to restrict, we just want it more. Mm -hmm. And then by the when we have it once, we can't stop eating it, right? That's normal human behavior, we can't have something, so we want it. Um, so, so I agree with the anti-diet kind of movement. Um, I don't agree with diets, fads, whatever. But at the same time, I'm now hearing my my clients say to me, "But I just want to see weight loss, so mm-hmm. then I can like be motivated to keep going." So, all of my clients would agree that they they know what I would say to that, and I say to them, "Look, I don't encourage it. I don't recommend it." But if you need to do whatever, then we need to talk about the after effect and what's going to happen because, you know, it's going to be quick, but not sustainable weight loss. It's Mm -hmm. going to be hard. You're not going to have energy, you know, kind of like all the side effects that are going to happen. And then what's going to happen after. Now, I also call something kind of the dieters mentality, which is this all or nothing mentality, which Mm -hmm. is also, as you know, a cognitive distortion. So many people that have been on diets for the majority of their life have all or nothing thinking. So it's, I had a piece of pizza. I screwed up my diet. I threw the towel in. I'm done. Now I need to get back on track. And that's actually a very destructive thought process that we want to change and we want to challenge because the idea of, you know, having a piece of pizza is totally fine. Like, I mean, I eat pizza. It's yummy. Right, right? It's totally fine. It's And there is no good or bad food. We don't want to label food that way. 
Um, so it's, you know, I often say, and this brings back this idea of CBT, I often say it's the thought that follows the behavior that's actually more important than the behavior itself. Mm. So what I mean by that is if I'm going to eat a piece of pizza and I'm going to beat myself up over it afterwards and feel guilty about it, then guess what? The pizza was not worth it. But if I'm able to go into the pizza, not impulsively, not emotional, in control, saying, I want to have a piece of pizza, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to eat it slowly. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to feel satisfied and then let it go. Like yummy, I had pizza and not beat myself up over it. Then that's what we want. We want that. We want people to go into food being like, this is what I want. I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to eat it. But if we're going to beat ourselves up afterwards, that's where the problem is. And that could be with eating anything. It doesn't have to be pizza. It could be a salad even, right? It could be chicken. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But we want to feel in control. And I, and I help my clients take that control back because when we're on diets, it's giving food and our weight too much control. And we don't feel like we're in control, which is then when we eat the one piece, Mm -hmm. we feel even more out of control. Like I screwed up and then it becomes this downward cycle. Um, So really it's about challenging those thoughts and then accepting the fact that I can eat this if I want to, and nothing bad is going to happen to me. I'm so happy you you brought it into CBT and that behavior is not the problem. It's the thought based on the behavior and then where you go with that. You know, my wife, like I said before, is a dietitian, and one of her first loves are Ben and Jerry. And I embrace that. And I love that she loves, you know, and that's what I really love about her and her mentality as a dietitian is that she doesn't have four bowls of ice cream. She says, I want this, I'm going to eat it, but I'm going to eat what I feel I need. So she'll have a cup of ice cream, you know, or, or, and if she wants more, she'll get more. And even for myself, you know, I have a chronic illness. I have Crohn's. And for me, my food is very much a game of, is it worth it? Right. And I have to then, if I want to have something that might make me feel sick, I need to embrace the fact that that's my choice and exactly. not to beat myself up if I don't feel well. Right. It doesn't because mean you I, were in control. Exactly. And it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't beat myself up and, you know, that's where that we're I human. go. Exactly. We're human. But that thought process of eating and embracing what you're eating and not going, what's wrong with you? How could you? That ends up creating this very negative cycle. And then if you ever come back to that opportunity again, all of a sudden, I know for me, and I've worked with people with this issue as well, they come flooding with, well, that happened last time. And then, oh no, and negativity and anger and frustration, all those really unhealthy cognitions that can really be destructive to anyone. Right. And, right. I, and, and I, we I, can, sorry. No, no. And I, I love you brought say, it that way. Yeah. I was going to say, and we can use those experiences for next time though. We can say, okay, the last time this happened, how did I feel afterwards? You know, what were my thoughts? How did I approach the situation? What worked? What didn't work? And then maybe we tweak it a little bit. You know, maybe yeah. it was the fact that you had three slices of mm-hmm. pizza and maybe you really wanted one. Mm-hmm. So have one and then stop and see how you feel. Exactly. You know? um, and I was giggling. I just have to say, I was giggling when you were talking about the ice cream with your wife, because if my husband was in this room and he heard that, he would be like, that's you, Rachel. That's <laughs> you. Like you eat your ice cream or my frozen yogurt every night. And I fully enjoy it. Great. And you deserve I want it. it. I love it. I enjoy it. And I don't care. <laughs> Good. And, and, and to bring it now, let's go with eating with children. My wife and I did baby led weaning. Yeah. And one of the, the classic like 
taglines of baby led weaning is mommy provides baby decides. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though I feel a little jealous that I'm not in that sentence, but <laughs> uh, um, that idea is that you give your child something and they have the power to decide if they want it. But the funny thing is that we don't use that tagline for ourselves because we have all this food and we can decide to eat what we want, but then we beat ourselves up and we decide to eat it. So, exactly. and my daughter has a better eating habit than some adults that I know because she knows what she, she wants her strawberries. She wants her blueberries or whatever fruits or vegetables or proteins or things that we provide to her. Um, and of course my wife has done research and knows what foods are important and great. Good. I trust her. Doesn't mean I always like it as a, like an old school kind of thought process of what a baby should and shouldn't eat, but mm-hmm. I still love that my child. I know, I know, (laughs) I know it is. And my wife and I have those discussions and I trust her very much in that aspect, but I find it so interesting that we, we give our child so much power to decide what they want to eat and we don't force feed them or make them feel bad for eating something that might not be quote unquote healthy or good or bad foods that we've labeled or society have labeled, whether it's sugars or carbs or those things. And she, she's happy and she's healthy. Yeah. I actually love that you said that because um, for people that don't know, I have a two-year-old and it's actually been amazing to watch, um, and I'm I'm sure you can relate to this, to watch how babies, um, how how they eat when they're hungry and they stop when they're full. Mm -hmm. And I remember this was very eye-opening to me that, you know, when, 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 when my little guy was, was younger and still, um, you know, having bottles and stuff. Um, he would literally push away, mm-hmm. like even, even the food, he would push it away if he didn't want it. Like before he was feeding himself, you know, and I'm like spoon feeding him something, he would push it away and I'm like, Oh, he's full. Okay. No big deal. And like, my husband was like, wait, but he didn't eat a lot. I'm like, it's okay. He's done eating. Like if he's hungry, he'll let us know, mm-hmm. you know, but we don't do that. Nope. Right. We just keep eating. Um, we're not in tune to our bodies. And I think it's important to keep in mind that we are all born being completely mindful and in tune to our bodies and our needs. And then unfortunately we get older in society and messages and all these things, um, tells us what's right and what's wrong and what's good enough and what's not good enough. And then that's where all of this kind of, you know, gets jumbled, so to say, um, but I think it's really eye-opening to think about it. And I think with human behavior in general, we can look at children, we can look at babies and how they develop. And we all started that way. And then kind of like, what happened? Well, hello, <laughs> hello diet world, right? Um, but yeah, I, I, it's been very eye-opening, I think, to be in the field of psychology um, and to be able to you know, kind of see what we were taught in school developmentally and, and also to see these things talking about food and hunger and, and all of that. Yeah, you know, my wife takes kind of the reins when it comes to feeding and kind of dietitian when it comes to our child. And I take the developmental side. Like I'm like totally I don't overbear and I'm not hovering <laughs> and I don't like go like, oh she did that, maybe this, but it's more of like my mindset. I'm watching and I'm just so amazed. Just like my wife is with a dietitian and the research and the studies that she did. Mm-hmm. But you're right my wife opened my eyes when even with breastfeeding, my baby would pull off. Right. Okay. She's done. And I said, we don't have to tell her or teach her or she doesn't have to learn that. It's just totally intuitive to my yeah. stomach is full. I'm done eating. And sometimes my baby, like she's still on bottles and she'll only have, let's say four ounces out of the eight. And I think my first thought is you didn't have yeah. the whole bottle. You must be yeah. so hungry. 
but she's telling you, I only need four. I'm okay. Right. Exactly. I have that conversation with my husband all the time. It's like, but he didn't finish it. I'm like, he doesn't want it. I see parallels. I see parallels. Yeah. And same. I mean, I breastfed also. So um, it's, you know, and even that, like when he would come up to me and like kind of pull my shirt down, I'm like, oh, you're hungry. You know, Um, but it's beautiful. Yeah. It's really amazing. So now that we're talking about children, what's that like, you know, right now, let's say during Corona, the pandemic, what's the life, the life balance of a therapist juggling having a two-year-old? I know I have a year and a half old, but how is that for you? And how wearing all those hats that are so important? It's funny because as you're saying that, I'm like imagining going like this, which nobody can see me, but like, ah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I love it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy. I'll, I'll admit um, it's, it's a juggle. It's a, it's a daily juggle. Um, and, and people ask me often, how do I do it? Because it might seem like I do a lot, which, which I guess I do. Um, but, but I don't do it all on my own. And I think that's really important for people to know Love that it. I have amazing support. Um, I know I mentioned my husband a few times. He's, you probably saw him like in the <laughs> background before he goes to work a little later so he can help, you know, like, we, I have that support. I also have childcare a few days a week. If I didn't have that, and I, and I really like people to know that I have that so they don't assume that I do it all because it's not realistic. Yeah. Um, I have that support and that's been huge. Um, but also I think it's amazing to be able to spend this much time with him because I'm working from home. I can pop in and see him and do whatever um, because it's an amazing time for, you know, as as you know, with your little one, it's an amazing time to be witnessing all of these things. But once again, it's a juggle. And I often say um, I make it work. And to me, that's what I do. Maybe that's me doing CBT on myself. (laughs) Um, But, but literally like, I feel like I have no other choice. Like I want to do X, Y, Z, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find a way to do it. Is it perfect? No, nobody's perfect. Nothing's perfect. I do good enough. You know, like, oh, I did that and I, and it worked. You know, if, if like one night we have to have less healthy dinner because I didn't have time to make a dinner, it is what it is. Nobody's exactly. going to die about exactly. that, you know? Um, so I'm, so I'm grateful for obviously the resources that I have, the support that I have, um, and knowing that, you know, we can just make it work. Like, like I often say, even with thoughts, you know, I said before we tweak the thought, well, I do that all the time. I tweak life all the time. You know, I, I move this around. I do that, you know, but also I, I don't, I do want to stress also my self-care um, because that's a big piece of it. Um, if I didn't have my me time, if I didn't have for me, that's running and exercising. If I didn't have that, I would not be able to do what I'm, physically, mentally doing right now, I also wouldn't be able to be available to my clients or my husband or my child or my friends and family if I didn't have that. So I think that's a great reminder that we didn't mention before in the tips, but that we really do have to remember to focus on ourselves. Um, Obviously, we have other responsibilities, and I'm not saying that in a selfish way, like take the day off and do you, but find time, you know, like I, on purpose, wake up before everybody else to get that in because I know if I'm doing it when everybody else is around, I might feel guilty. But if I know everyone's sleeping, nobody needs me. Um, That's just how I work. That's not for everybody. Um, But I think finding those times is really important and remembering that you have to be healthy in order to be healthy and available for others. So I remind myself that as much as I need to as well and use those skills and the positive self-talk when I need those reminders also. 
Well, I was going to get into it anyways, even if you didn't bring it up earlier about the self-care. And I thank you so much for that normalization of, I get that a lot also. Oh, you have a podcast, oh, you're a therapist and you're a father and you're a, a husband. How do you do it all? And I'm not doing it one, I'm not doing it all at once, first of all. Right. And second of all, I have help and balance. Like this morning, I don't I didn't start work till I don't start work till two o'clock Eastern time. That means I helped with my child. I got her to the babysitter. I took my wife to her to the train to go to work because now she works in a hospital and she's working in person. And then I took like two hours to have a coffee, watch something and journal and read something before we got on this call. (laughs) Right. But it only happened because X, Y, and Z happened first. And if I don't, and I'm not able to have that, I'll stay up late and do it or wake up early because I always say this, and this, this might be selfish, but if you can't find a half an hour for yourself in the day, something's not right. Right. Because you need to give yourself a priority as well. But it doesn't mean that you're not giving the other things priority too. It's about pivoting, like you said, or um, adjusting or tweaking your day, your thoughts, your mind. And um, I love that you made it just so real because I think a lot of people need to hear that because they look at people only through the lens of social media or through the professional outlets that we do or podcasts or anything. And it looks like everyone just has their stuff together. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't, and that's okay. And we need to kind of be more kind to ourselves to understand that we're doing our best and that is good enough. And Absolutely. And I think that goes along with what I say too, that life happens. I think accepting that life happens, accepting that plans aren't going to go as planned, accepting that we're going to have to pivot and make tweaks, um, I think is a big part of it too. Because I think if we are so set on, this is my schedule, this is what I'm doing, Um, it's going to be really hard to adjust. And the people that have that more kind of open mind, I think we're able to, for instance, adjust more with COVID, for instance. You know, it's like, all right, this happened. This is what I got to do. And and for me, actually, I used to be much more of a planner. And then I became pregnant. And I mean, I I planned the pregnancy to (laughs) agree. But what I meant by that was pregnancy, being pregnant, um, made me realize I can't plan everything. There were days that I didn't feel well that were out of my control. There were days that I had to do things that were out of my control and obviously having a child, same thing. Um, so I think accepting that sooner than later is helpful and knowing that life happens, but like we make it work. Yeah. I think having a baby and having a chronic illness has taught me to go with the flow and learn because I, you know, all my life having ADHD, one of the biggest struggles I had was when things don't go as planned, um, I wasn't very flexible. It was Mm -hmm. something that, and it still comes up once in a while, but having a kid in chronic illness has changed the game of the idea of flexibility. You have to, or you will not survive. Right. Right. And that's that's how I was. Yeah. And you want to have dinner, your kid comes and you eat later. And it's really about going with the punches. You know, the last question, because we only have a couple minutes left and I know you are such a busy person doing such great work. Can you tell everyone, what is your favorite part about being a therapist? Oh my gosh. I, I love everything about it, to be honest. <laughs> um, it's a good but thing. I, yeah, no, it is. And and I, I'm definitely a believer of the saying, like, you know, if you're passionate about the work mm-hmm. you do, you don't work a day in your life. Yes. Um, and that's how I feel about my work. I, I love, so obviously, you know, in the story I talked about going into psychology, you know, I love understanding humans. I, I'm very curious about human behavior and thought process but I love connecting with people. Yeah. And I think being a therapist, we connect with people on another level. 
Um, you know, that I think you, nobody can understand unless you're a therapist in yes. a way. Um, but you really connect with people on another level. And I, I like to be able to do that and provide that for people. And then also to be able to help people, even through my social media and the little tips that I give, be able to help people realize that all you have to do is make a small, small, small tweak or a small change. And it can have these big lasting effects that really make us happier and healthier. So I think kind of seeing that though firsthand from like, you know, clients come back the next week, oh, wow, I did it and blah, blah, blah. Or when they say, wow, I feel like I didn't change anything, but I feel so much better. Mm-hmm. So kind of obviously those um, effects as well. Um, but but the whole process, I love. It's, it's not just the wins, you know, because like, you know, people have things that they're going through, you know, yeah. life sucks sometimes. Yep. Um, and I think being there and being one of those support systems for people um, is rewarding in, in many ways. I agree with everything you said. Um, and just to wrap up, I really appreciate you for making the time. I know that you're a very busy person. I know you, you go on all these other media outlets and I know, you know, you do such amazing work. Where can people find you? Can you let us know? And they'll be in the show notes, so don't worry, but where can people kind of reach out and connect with you? Sure. Um, so my website is drrachelnyc.com. Um, and my Instagram is probably one of the easiest ways to connect with me. Um, and that's Dr. Rachel NYC as well. I always like to remind people Instagram is not therapy, but I'm happy to more than happy to, um, receive messages from people to point them in the right direction, provide resources or educational tools. So please don't hesitate to reach out, say hi. I I love, as I said, I love to connect with people and I'm happy to do that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the best of luck and more amazing things in your future. And also, you know, to watch your baby grow up. That's a really exciting thing. I feel the same way of being able to do that. So uh, thank you so much for bringing some humanity into uh, the work that you do. It's really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me here as well and connecting. It's great. Of course, of course. To many more times. Yes. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this week's Dude Therapist episode. As always, looking for more and more content for you, the listeners and followers. So if you have any questions, thoughts, ideas, concerns, wonderments, just message me and DM me at the Dude Therapist on Instagram or email me at the Dude Therapist at gmail.com. I'm very accessible. Just reach out. Would love to talk and get to know you, the listeners. So thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Dude Therapist Podcast. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of the Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. 
So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast. So we've got more guests and more great content coming your way.